If you have your Bibles, go ahead and um, turn to Daniel chapter 9. And as you make your way uh, to the book, let me, let me pray for us as we really need the Lord to make himself known. Um, one of the things, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, we really can't study the Word uh, without the Spirit illuminating truth to us. Um, this is not just facts about God. Um, this is God making himself known to us. This is God confronting us for where we are, where in a sense, as he makes himself known to us, he exposes us and our sins and our weaknesses and our fears and our insecurities. And rather than turning to ourselves through his word, he says, no, turn to me. And for humans, that's very hard. Because who likes asking for help? And who likes depending on others to help them? None of us. And so we need the Spirit to come and open up our eyes, open up our ears, to take our heart of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh. So that this is not just knowledge that we hear about God, but that it would impact us in such a way that it would lead us to dependence on Him and walking in obedience. And so that's been my prayer for you all week. Um, And so can we pray this as a church, let the Lord come and make Himself known to us. Lord, we need you. We cannot understand your word without you. So can you come and meet us where we are? Can you help us to focus as we read your word? Can you give us eyes that will see your truth? Can you give us ears that will hear your truth? Can you give us a mind that will understand your truth? And you, can you take our hearts and transform it by your truth? Lord, you know each and every one in this room. You know them by name. You know how much hair they have on their head. You know what they're thinking. You know what they're feeling. You know what they're going through. You know what they've gone through. And you also know what they are going to go through in the future. So can you take your word and and present it in such a way that it confronts them, it challenges them, it encourages them, and it transforms them. So come, Holy Spirit, and fill this place. And may Christ be glorified in this sermon and for the rest of our service. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our series going through Daniel. And the reason why we pick Daniel, and really a main theme of Daniel, and what, what, what the Lord is revealing uh, to Daniel, what Daniel is revealing to the people of God, is to show us that the Lord is sovereignly in control of the nations, and that He is establishing His eternal kingdom. And so what's the people of God's responsibility? What's our response in the midst of the sovereignty of God, in the midst of him establishing his kingdom? Our responsibility as the people of God is to remain faithful to the Lord. Now, as we get to to Daniel chapter 9, we're going to spend um, all of our time looking at, I believe, one of the most remarkable prayers in the Bible. Next week, so if you kind of came prepared uh, to get into the difficult parts of chapter 9, that's next week. So I am very sorry if you're disappointed. And next week, you're probably going to be disappointed in me as well. So I'm just setting you up for just weeks of disappointment. But, but here's, really, here's what I want to do. I don't want us to skip over this prayer because this prayer is so remarkable. And I think when we understand the prayer and what Daniel was longing for and what Daniel was actually asking for, I think it might help us in our interpretation when we look at all these weird dates and all these kinds of things. So, so here's what we're going to do as we look at the, the prayer of Daniel. I wish I had the time to go line for line. We don't. So what we're going to do is we're going to make a couple observations, uh, five observations. And in the midst of the five observations, we're going to try to, to take the text and, and create some practical applications in the midst of this observation. And then really see at the end, like, what is Daniel really asking for? What is Daniel really longing for in his prayer? So let's look at this prayer in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. It says this, In the first year of Darius, the son of Hazurus, a Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom, 
In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books, according to the word of the Lord, to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So so let's just stop here and see what are we observing? What's going on? First of all, Daniel provides for us an historical marker. And based on the time of when King Darius ruled, uh, it shows us that it's been approximately 12 years from the vision he had in chapter 8 to chapter 9. So how much time has passed from the last chapter we read to chapter 9? Approximately 12 years. That means Daniel is now well in his 80s. He's outlived the Babylonian Empire. He has seen the Medo-Persian Empire come into place, which means the visions that he had, that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2, the vision he himself had in chapter 7 and in chapter 8, is now partially being fulfilled. So what's he doing? Well, let's look at verse 2. What what is he doing? In verse 2, it says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. In other words, what's Daniel doing? He's reading reading Scripture. He is reading Scripture. The word of the Lord, more specifically from the prophet Jeremiah. And in his readings from the prophet of Jeremiah, he has discovered that the exile is only going to last 70 years. You're like, where exactly is he reading Jeremiah? In Jeremiah 25, verses 1 to 14, Jeremiah 29, verses 1 to 11. A little interesting side comment. Um, How does Daniel refer to Jeremiah's books? He refers to it as the word of the Lord. He sees Jeremiah's writings, and he says, this is the word of the Lord. In other words, the point that I'm trying to make, and it's a little side point because we can really get into a rabbit trail, is that Scripture refers to itself as Scripture as the word of the Lord. How do we know that Scripture is the word of the Lord? Because Scripture says it's the word of the Lord. Daniel, who is writing the book of Daniel, that's part of the word of the Lord, is looking at Jeremiah and saying, this is the word of the Lord. But let, let, let me move on. We've got lots of work to cover here. So let's look at the big picture here. Well, what's going on? God judged Israel for their rebellion. He sent them into exile. Now, God has, from the very beginning, through the prophet and through Moses, given them the law and says, if you continue in your rebellion, if you break the covenant with me and not uphold the law, not obey me and walk in rebellion, you will be sent into exile. And so God, by sending them into exile, is remaining faithful to his word. Daniel That's part of the generation that's been exiled. He's been exiled in 605 B.C. And in the midst of this exile, the Lord uses Jeremiah to encourage his people saying, Yes, we have sinned. The Lord has judged us. We are sent in exile. But be encouraged. This exile will not remain forever. But rather, this exile will last 70 years. So when Daniel was exiled in 605 B.C., And now, again, the timeline of Darius, it's about 538 B.C. So if you do the math, we're going down in time or or backwards. It's about 67 years. Daniel is spending time in the word of the Lord. He's reading Jeremiah, and he discovers the exile is going to end. After 70 years, it's coming to a close. So what's Daniel doing? Daniel is reading God's word. He's meditating on God's word. He's believing God's word. And what does he do after that? Look at verse 3. I turn my attention to the Lord by seeking him in prayer. So after reading, meditating, 
believing. Now he responds in prayer. And so here's my first observation, just, just observing what's happening in the text and the principle I think we can apply to our lives is this if you're taking notes, is that the flow from, that we see the flow from scripture to prayer. We see the flow from scripture to prayer. So in this text, what we see is Daniel's prayer is flowing from scripture. Now, I don't want to be legalistic and say you have to read the Bible before you pray because I don't think that's always the case. But the point I'm trying to make and the observation that I'm trying to make is notice how prayer and scripture go together. You cannot separate the two. Now, in our culture, even myself, we have a tendency to want to separate the two. So, for example, if we had to take a survey of how many of you spend more time in prayer than in the Word, most some people would say, oh, I spend more time praying than in the Word. And then some of you would say, hey, I spend more time in the Word, but not really in prayer. And the point that I'm trying to make is, no, you cannot separate the two. The amount of time you spend in in the Word should also be in prayer. The two go hand in hand together. Together. Now, now think about this with, 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 with what I mean by that. Let's say, for example, if all you do is pray and you're not in the Word, what are you doing? You're praying to a God you do not know because God makes Himself known to us through His Word. And if all you do is in the Word and you do not respond in prayer, what are you doing? In a sense, You're not believing the God of the Bible that you are reading about. And so what we see and what's so important for our spiritual life and what we see in the life of Daniel is the flow from Scripture to prayer. Reading the Word. Meditating on the Word. Believing the Word. How do we know he believes the Word? Because he exercises that faith in in prayer. In seeking the Lord. If you want to deepen your understanding of God, if you want to do a better job praying, like how many of you say, I'm not very good at praying? You want to get better at prayer? You want to deeper your understanding of the word? Read it and then pray it. I think last time I checked, there's a whole book in the Bible that's about praying and singing. It's 150 of them. It's called, the, it's called the Psalms. That's not even included some of the prayers of the saints throughout Scripture. So let's, so, so, so let's start applying this to our lives. Like, hey, like in my time with the Lord, let me be intentional in reading the Word, meditating on the Word, and then believing the Word as I respond in prayer. Let me teach myself how to pray through praying Scripture. Um, The second observation that we notice is not only are we seeing Daniel reading the word, responding to the word through prayer, but notice the posture in his prayer. The second thing is the posture of humility in prayer. The posture of humility in prayer. Look look, look at verse 3 here. So I turn my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petition with fasting sackcloth and ashes. In other words, in some of your translations, it's seeking his face. It's kind of a weird sentence, but you know what that sentence means? Turning to him and seeking his face. Nothing profound in it. But the posture of humility that Daniel has in it, he covers himself with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I'm not going to go with each one, but, but really what it does is fasting is abstaining from something so that he can prioritize seeking the face of the Lord. Sackcloth was kind of like this wild animal skin that kind of irritated your skin, and it kind of marked this, this symbol of repentance of like, I'm not going to pursue my own comfortability, but I'm going to seek the Lord as a mark of repentance. Ashes was this idea, a sign of lamenting and grieving, and so it's in this 
posture that he is seeking the Lord. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying in a legalistic way, hey, when you read the word, you should pray. And when you pray, you should have sackcloth. Let's go all buy it on Amazon sackcloth and then ashes and fasting. And this is what your life should be looking like. No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is look at the posture of humility in his prayer how he was humbled before the Lord. He had a heavy heart before the Lord that only God could bear. He was seeking his face. He was declaring his dependence on the Lord. I think here's a helpful question for us in application. Like what humbles us before the Lord? What causes us to, when we stand in his presence, to be humble? If we go to the text, what did Daniel do? What caused Daniel to be humble before the Lord? The reading of the word. Because when you read the word, what are you confronted with? You're confronted with who God is. And then you're also confronted with who you are. So Daniel, in reading the word, he is confronted by by God and who he is faithful, gracious, compassionate. And then he's confronted with who he is. Unfaithful, unholy, sent into exile because of their, because of their rebellion against the Lord. And in a sense, that humbled him before the Lord. And so what humbles us before the Lord? Knowing who God is and knowing who we are in relation to God. Standing before a holy God. And as we stand before a holy God, one of the first things we realize is, oh no, I am not holy. Let's look at the the, the prayer because it all flows together. Look at this prayer in in, in Daniel 4. We're going to read a large chunk of it um, and then do some observations. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keep His commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from Your commands and ordinances. We've not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings, leaders, fathers, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us. The men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far, and all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty they have shown towards you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belongs to the Lord our God. Though we've rebelled against Him and we've not obeyed the Lord our God by following His instructions that He set before us through His servants, the prophets. Let's stop here. You're thinking, okay, we get the point. Let's let's see the same message. Verse 11, it says, All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all he has done, but we have not obeyed him. Remember the first observation as we just see the, the flow from Scripture and prayer. I, I want to point this back again real quick. Um, Daniel begins his prayer with the word. And his entire prayer is literally saturated with God's word. 
I don't have time to show you all the references, so here's your homework if you want homework. Um, if you have a study Bible and you have all these little footnotes or in this middle column cross-references, look at all the cross-references and how it is saturated with God's Word. John Piper even notes this. He says, this prayer brims with a biblical view of reality because it brims with the Bible. And again, the reason I'm bringing it up, my plea for you is, hey, if you want to learn how to pray, read the Word and pray Scripture. You can't go wrong. Here's a, a, a third observation. We see the flow from Scripture. We see the, the posture of humility in prayer. The third one is this. Look at the honest corporate confession of sin in prayer. If you're taking notes, look at the honest corporate confession of sin in prayer. Notice the overwhelming plural pronoun. He doesn't say I want. It's we. Who's the we? Judah. All the people of Israel. So when Daniel is praying and when Daniel is confessing, he is standing in solidarity with the people of God. We Israelites, we Judah, we the people of God have done such a thing. And notice the many terms Daniel uses to describe their sin. Let me quickly do an overview with you. Notice all the terms he describes their sin. Verse 5, he says, we've sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned away. Verse 6 says, we've not listened. Verse 7 says, public shame belongs to us because of this this loyalty. Verse 9, we've rebelled. Verse 10, we've not obeyed the Lord. Verse 11, we've broken your law, turned away, refusing to obey. We have sinned against Him. Verse 13, we've not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our injustices and paying attention to your truth. And verse 14, but we have not obeyed. It's just fascinating. Daniel, kind of reading the book of Daniel, looking at the guy's life, I think all of us can say, Daniel was a godly man. Can, can we say that about him? Like, Daniel was a godly man. But do you know why Daniel was a godly man? Because Daniel in his prayer was a broken man. Like, like we almost have this skewed view of godliness as godliness is perfection. But that's not godliness. Look at Daniel here. Daniel was godly because Daniel was broken. He saw the reality of their sin. He saw the, 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 the severity of their sin, knowing that their sin is ultimately against God and knowing who God is and knowing who he is and who they are, it broke and clearly we see in, the, in this posture of humility, seeking the Lord in his brokenness with sackcloth, fasting, and ashes. And so when we read this prayer, let's just be honest. This kind of prayer is strange for us today. Like, like let's, let's, let's just let's have an honest conversation here. Here's a question. Like, and I'm not asking this question in judgment because this question is for myself as well. But when was the last time you were broken over your sins? I mean, broken. Now, not because you got caught and you made a mistake and now you have to make a public apology so that people would just go away. I mean, you're broken over it. Not because of you, but because of the holiness of God. See, Daniel was broken because of the holiness of God. Like, when was the last time that's happened to you? This is why, um, if, if you notice our, our services, we're trying to be very intentional. Do you know why we add a time of confession and assurance? And have you noticed when that time of confession and assurance is in our services? When is it? After the reading of the word and the singing of the word. Because what happens after the reading of the word and the singing of the word? The goal is that when we read the word and we sing the word, what's the object of it? 
God, we get to experience God in all of his holiness, that God is an awe-inspiring God. And how should that impact us as believers? It should break us because what we're confronted with is God is holy, I am not. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the God, and he says, holy is the Lord, and then he says, yeah, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah, Daniel was broken, not because they've messed up. They were broken because they saw the holiness of God, and in seeing the holiness of God, they recognized their unholiness. And this is why we add a time of confession and assurance. And my, my prayer for us as a church is that we won't just enter this time of confession and assurance with just going through the motions and just do it because we always do it. Or for some of you, grumbling or refusing to participate. But my prayer for us as a church is that as we are confronted with Scripture and God calls us to worship and we respond in singing the word of the Lord, that somehow the Spirit would come and break us of our sins and saying, look at how beautiful and how awe-inspiring God is, and look at us. Oh no, we are in trouble. And yet it doesn't end with confession. How does it end? Assurance. Because God has acted, just like in Isaiah where, where the angel of the Lord took a coal and touched his mouth and made him clean. What it means is God acted and cleansed them. We, in our time of confession, can give an assurance because the assurance is God has acted and made us holy. When was the last time you've been broken over your sins? Maybe another question is, okay, Neil, I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, you know, maybe I've never been broken over my sins, so I, what do I do? What do I do? How, how do I get broken over my sins? What's well, the same thing I've been telling you this whole sermon? Read what? Read the Word, respond in prayer. The Holy Spirit revealed truth to you through the Word, as you read the word, what happens? The Lord makes himself known to you. As you respond in prayer to the word, the Holy Spirit moves. These are divine things. These are spiritual things. This is not some formula of getting a diet and kind of fixing things. This is a work of the Lord. And again, Daniel's brokenness was a work of the Lord. Our brokenness it will be a work of the Lord as he makes himself known to us and he confronts us in our sins and reveals to us our unholiness and our desperate need for him. As we read the word, we respond in prayer. We ask the Lord, Lord, break me of my sins. Um, Alistair Begg, in one of his messages I listened to last week, he said, you know, I can preach the same message, and my message will actually be better, the same message I preach, if you guys actually come prepared to pray and ask the Lord to move. And, and the idea of it is, it's like, if we want to see the Lord move in our midst, if we want to see uh, dead people be raised to life, if we want to see us experiencing the Lord, we don't just come... Shouldn't we come somewhat prepared? Shouldn't we come somewhat expected, expecting the Lord to move in our midst, for the Lord to speak and confront us of our sins? So my encouragement to you is don't just come to church and the only thing you've done is get dressed and have breakfast. That's good, okay? Do that. <laughs> don't come naked. <laughs> but come with an expectation. Come with prayerfully seeking the Lord. Lord, I, I need you to come and speak to me. I need you to make yourself known to me. Let's, let's move on. The third, fourth observation is, he, he is he's confessing sin, and the, the, the fourth one is, notice the continuous appeal to God and his character. Throughout his confession of sin, 
He is appealing to God and his character. Now, I, I do think, a little sidetrack, there is the fine line of people confessing their sins and making it all about themselves. Like, that's sinful. I'm just telling you that. That, that is sinful. When you are the victim, woe is me, I can't do anything, and all you do is confessing your you, who are you making it all about? You're making it all about you. It's not about God. It's about you and what you've done wrong and how you feel. But what Daniel is doing in the midst of his confession of sin, it's not about him. Is he broken over it? Yes. But he is continually throughout the prayer, continually appealing to God and his character. Let, let, let me show you this. In verse 4, he says, Our Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant. Verse 7, Lord, righteousness belongs to you. Verse 9, compassion and forgiveness belongs to the Lord our God. Verse 12, he has carried out his word. Verse 14, the Lord our God is righteous in all he has done. In other words, what's happening in the midst of him pleading and confessing his sin, he's appealing to the Lord and his character that is rooted in, in the word of the Lord. It's rooted in Scripture. And one of the fascinating things he is saying is, what has happened to us in exile, as tragic as it may seem, is right. Why? Because God is righteous. Think about that statement. How many of us would say that? Like, and what that takes is not bravery, uh, being brave or bold, but it's having an understanding of who God is. He was just so overcome by the Lord. Um, amazingly, he ends verse 14. He says, So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all he has done, but we have not obeyed him. It almost seems like by reading verses 13 and 14, Daniel seems to be saying that though Israel has gone through the ravages of God's uh, curse and being sent into exile, the people still remain unchanged, unbroken, unrepentant. The people of God had a history of rebelling against God, committing idolatry and rebelling against Him. And even though the people are in exile, have they changed? They're still unrepentant. They're still unbroken. And in a sense, what Daniel is kind of pleading to is like, what good is it to bring us into this land if we're continuing in our sins? And this is not just the story of Israel. This is the story of humanity. This is the story of us. So, so here's what's happening in this prayer. If God's people are still guilty of their sin and they're a rebellion. There is no appeal. There's no retrial. There's no evidence to give a slither of hope that they've changed. Is there any hope? Is there any avenue for grace and forgiveness? On what basis would God forgive them and restore them and bring them back? Look at the last part of the verse, verse 15, and let's answer this. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is this day, we have sinned, we've acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with all of your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see your desolations in the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion, Lord. Hear, Lord, forgive, Lord, listen and act, my God, for your own sake. Do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel is continually appealing to the Lord's character. 
to move according for the Lord to act, the Lord to move according to his character, not their performance. And here's my last observation. Really, this is the main point. I think this is the, 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 the real thing that's behind the prayer is this. Daniel sees that the righteousness of God is the basis both for God's judgment and God's forgiveness. Why are the people in exile? God is righteous. Why should God forgive them? God is righteous. That's the point that Daniel is making. This is what he is seeing in Scripture. And and notice this. um, Even think about our apologies. Like, Daniel is not saying to the Lord, Lord, forgive us. Lord, bring us back to the land because we're really sorry for what we've done. We've really tried harder not to do it again. We'll never do it again. I, I, I promise we feel really bad. We've started to make things better. Is he saying that kind of stuff? No. What is he saying? Lord, we need you to act. We need you to restore us. We need you to forgive us based on your righteousness, turn your wrath away. Based on your kindness and your compassion, forgive us. In other words, what Daniel was pleading for, he's pleading for forgiveness. Not based on their performance, but based on God's righteousness and God's compassion. In other words, if the Lord is going to forgive his people and bring them out of exile back into the promised land, it is not dependent on the people of God and how they act and how they perform, but rather it's dependent on who? It's dependent on how God acts. And how is God going to act? Based on his character based on being righteous, based on being compassionate. That somehow the Lord is going to forgive them and rightfully deal with their sins and restore them to the land. So in this prayer, what's Daniel really asking for? What's Daniel really longing for? Daniel is confronted with the Holy God. He sees his condition of his heart and the condition of his people. God is holy. We are not. We have sinned. We rightfully deserve God's wrath. But God, we need you to act and somehow dealing with our sins and somehow taking our unholiness and making us holy and somehow taking our dirty, filthy rags and making us clean. What's he asking for? He's asking for God to act. He's asking for God to provide a savior. In a sense, Daniel is asking for who? He's asking for, he's asking for Jesus. That, 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 that's the heart of his prayer. We need a Savior. We need to provide the Savior. Because looking at our track record, not good. Looking at how we've performed, not good. God, you must act. You must provide based on your character. Um, Daniel longs for, for, for a Savior, Jesus. The Apostle Paul in in Romans chapter 3, he kind of picks up this principle of God's righteousness that's the basis for his judgment and the forgiveness of sin. Now, if you really think about it, if God's righteousness is the basis for judgment and for forgiveness of sin, then there's a question that all of us must ask. Okay, time out here. How can a righteous God forgive unrighteous people and remain righteous. If righteousness is the basis for his judgment, then he takes unrighteous people and righteously judges them for their unrighteousness. So how can he who is righteous take unrighteous people, forgive them and say, you're no longer unrighteous, you are righteous. 
And Paul says in Romans 3, and I'm going to quickly read a few Romans 3, uh, verses 21 to 26. He says, the answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. He says, but now in verse 21, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. Daniel was a prophet. And what was Daniel longing for? For God to act based on his righteousness. And Paul is taking that theme and he is saying, oh yeah, the righteousness of God has been revealed. That the law and the prophets, a.k.a. Remember what Daniel longed for? Daniel even talked about that. Verse 22, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, for some of you, you're like, whoa, that's way over my head, and that could be a whole sermon of itself. But basically, here, let me summarize this. God, who is righteous, has righteously dealt with your sin the cross of Christ. Because at the cross of Christ, what did God do? He rightfully punished our sin. And at the cross, Christ's righteousness was exchanged for our unrighteousness. So by God who is righteous, not overlooking sin, by rightfully punished sin in the person of his son and the work of Jesus Christ, he can now declare unrighteous people righteous through faith because he's rightfully punished sin. Daniel longed for it. Paul explained it. It is all at the cross of Christ. So coming to us now, we have this skew view of sin. Like, let's not deal with sin. Let's focus on Jesus. Let me ask you this. Why can we be broken over our sins and not be crushed by it? Why can we freely, can we freely come and confess our sins without being crushed by its guilt and shame? Why can the Bible say, confess your sins to one another without fear of judgment? Why can the people of God corporately come together and confess their sin in both sorrow and joy. What's the answer? The cross of Jesus Christ. We can do this not because we've had good weeks. Oh, my sin wasn't bad that week, so whew, I don't have to sweat it. I really had a good week this week, so I don't have to confess that. My, just tiny little, ooh, this is a bad week. Oh, my, I really can't confess it. No, it is on the performance of Jesus Christ that we can come and confess our sins. Because at the cross, Jesus was crushed. At the cross, Jesus took our guilt and shame. At the cross, Jesus took our judgment. At the cross, we've been forgiven. We've been declared righteous. And it's been made available by grace in Christ. And we receive it through faith. And so in a sense, this, this exercise of faith, when I confess my sins to you and you confess my sins, your, your sins to me, and we encourage one another to, with Christ, what are we saying in a sense? We're exercising that faith saying, as bad as that sin is, it's paid for. You don't have to walk around with that guilt and shame. You don't have to worry about me judging you. Because Christ took that judgment. Christ carried it upon himself. In a sense, we can also say, as we look at Daniel's prayer, for most of us in the 21st century, like that's probably one of the worst prayers that we can't relate to. But why can Daniel pray with such brokenness, such sorrow, and yet not be crushed? Because he trusted God, that God was going to provide a Savior. He didn't know how. All he knew was who was God. Great, awe-inspiring God who was faithful to his gracious covenant. 
a God who is righteous, compassionate, and kind. Why can we be broken over our sins? Why can we confess it to one another? Why can we feel the weight of it and and confess it in both sorrow and experience joy? Friends, it's because of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be ashamed of your sin. You don't have to feel the guilt of it. Christ paid for it. You can freely confess it. You don't have to hide it. My prayer for us as a church, if we truly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will be the most open, honest, transparent, loving church they could be. Why? Because of the gospel. We have an understanding of the gospel. I don't have to hide nothing. I don't have to be ashamed of anything. I can openly and freely talk about what I struggle with. I can talk about my fears and my failures. And I can share it. Because of what Christ has done for me, I've been declared righteous. I've been forgiven. I am in the process of being made holy. And one day I will stand in his presence and be made holy, be made perfect. This is what we hope for. This is what we trust in. Let's pray and let's get to the table. Lord, Lord, every time we talk about the confession of sin, when we read about prayers confessing sin, for most of us, if we're honest, it really makes us uncomfortable. Lord, we confess that we live in a culture that loves to pretend that loves to to think we're better than we actually are, that loves to misplace our hope, our identity, and our performances and our achievements. And yet, Lord, if we're honest, when we stand in front of you, we're unclean, unholy. In a sense, as Isaiah says, we are covered in dirt. And if that was the end of the message, we would be crushed and there's no hope for us. But that's not the end. For as Daniel longed for you to act and save and to forgive, we know that you have acted in Jesus. That you have taken our dirty clothes off and given us new clothes. You've taken our sin and you've paid for it in full. And you are committed to us and love us, and you've promised us that you who began a good work is going to finish it. As we continue to pray, I just want to give you a real brief time here just to reflect on this question. When was the last time you've been broken over your sin? When's the last time you've just been so overwhelmed by the Lord And as you think, just just use this time to ask the Lord to make himself known. Ask the Lord to break your heart. To reveal your sin, to expose for what it is and and then not just drown in your sorrow but to run to the cross to see ah that's where it's been paid for in full This morning, maybe for the first time, you are recognizing that you are sinful in need of a Savior. The invitation to you is to run to the cross of Christ where you paid for it in full. Trust Him as your Lord and Savior. And for some of you, if you're a believer, maybe you have misplaced hopes and you're being crushed by your sin right now. And what's your response? 
run to the cross of Christ and trust in Him. And as we get to the table, guess what we're going to do? We're going to run to the cross of Christ. When we take up these elements, what are we reminded of? His body given to us. His blood shed for us. My sins have been paid for. I have been declared righteous. And he is in the process of making me holy. He's given me his spirit. I'm no longer an enemy. I'm a son and daughter. And all of this is not because of my performance, but is what Christ has performed on my behalf. So I receive these elements, feeling the weight of my sin, feeling the sorrow and joy, and not crushed by it, saying, thank you, Lord Jesus, for your body given to me, for your blood shed for me, because without it, I am crushed. So let's go ahead and, and, and distribute these elements and meditate on these truths and think about the wonderful cross of Christ that's paid for our sins in full. I know this is a heavy message if some of you feel a little beaten up but I want to encourage you you had a bad week you feel like life might be falling apart you feel crushed by your sin you're really discouraged maybe you relate to Paul the things I thought I would never do I'm ending up doing I'm trying and I'm failing well be encouraged Jesus gave his body to you eat it in remembrance of him Jesus shed his blood for you, washed you as white as snow, the new covenant you have in him, drink it in remembrance of him. And it is on that basis that God accepts you and he has made you your son, a daughter, he has adopted you into the family. So let's take our time and just thank the Lord for his provision through his son. Thank the Lord that our sins are forgiven, that the price has been paid for. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been set free from the bondages of sin. Our debt has been paid in full. We can walk in victory constantly fighting against sin, knowing we've been set free from it, we can have victory over it as we look to Jesus, as we point one another to Jesus. Lord, all glory belongs to you. All praise, all honor. We love you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and let's worship our Savior. Amen. And in light of that blessed hope, receive this benediction from Colossians 3, verse 16 to 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Have a great week for us, Park, and share this message.